Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, proud partner in personalized medicine, developing tailored treatments for cancer patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anise Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers is our way of providing you with the most up-to-date information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, Dr. Gore is joined by Dr. Jesse Reinhardt for a conversation about cancer research. Dr. Reinhardt is an Associate Professor of Cellular and Molecular Physiology at Yale School of Medicine, and Dr. Gore is Director of Hematologic Malignancies at Smilo Cancer Hospital. You know, as I as I uh, host uh, this uh, series from time to time, I'm really struck. You know, we have a lot of our guests are from uh, the Yale School of Medicine, and I have to say that the departmental uh, nomenclature has has more words per sentence per title uh, than in any place I've ever been. A professor of cellular, molecular, yes. physiology. Uh, any meaning there, cellular molecular physiology? Are you a physiologist? I am a physiologist, and what you're witnessing is sort of the evolution of departmental nomenclature. So uh-huh. at the very core, we are a department of physiology, and that is very much strongly rooted in, in the principles of medicine. But as the field and as science has progressed, you, you are aware that we have a much more molecular understanding of the world and of cells and of processes So what you can notice across the nation and even the world is that these names like cellular, molecular are infiltrating the disciplines. So it's no longer microbiology, it's molecular microbiology, for example. I get it, you know, because when I was a medical student and that was a, quite a number of years ago, physiology was about how the lungs worked Mm -hmm. and uh, forces in the heart and and how muscles put torque uh, on bones. You know, it was very much at a gross, I mean, we learned a little bit about cellular physiology and sort Mm -hmm. of how the endocrine system worked and the kidneys worked, I guess. Yes. Uh, But, uh, you know, not not so much really. It was really mostly about organs function. Yes. And we still teach that today. We teach those basic principles. They're extremely important because the body functions exactly the same way as it did then as it does now. The difference is that we now understand the genetic basis of so many diseases. And so the challenge for us as scientists and as educators in medicine is that we take that knowledge of the genetic cause, but then we have to translate those principles right back up to the the top of the the system's food chain or line, if you will. We're going to talk about systems biology and you just introduced the perfect example. Well, good. I, I was going to say that I guess you still need to know how the lungs work if you're going to treat asthma. Absolutely. Past beyond knowing how the smooth muscle cell yes. in asthma is dysfunctioning or not functioning well, you need to know how the lungs work, uh, or you can save the cell and lose the patient. I guess, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and treatment is still very much a um, you know a practice and a quest you know to make your patient healthy. And we still have a long way to go to to what we call translate, so translate things that we understand on the basic science level so that it makes it all the way to treatment. So that, that's still a big challenge, even in education and in practice of medicine, is yeah. putting it all together like that. Yeah, no, I imagine uh, that educating this uh, new generation of physicians, physician scientists, basic sciences, scientists in the medical uh, or biological human biology fields, uh, you know, has got to be uh, especially more challenging, uh, even than it always has been. But maybe that's always been the case. Challenging, but extremely fun. Yeah. I mean, they're 
very, very knowledgeable, and their level of detail and their quest for those those uh, intricacies is really impressive. So they keep us on our toes. Okay, so put on your teacher's hat then. Sure. And I think, first of all, our, our listenership may not even know what physiology is, for example. Uh, so maybe you could give us a, a brief thumbnail on, on what physiology encompasses, and then tell us about systems biology, which I'm, I'm sure most of us don't really understand sure. much about. Sure. Um, Sometimes I think about physiology and explain it as sort of the the basic principles of medicine. So in, in human in human medicine, it's the science behind how everything works. So physiology is, um, as you put it earlier, a description of different organ systems and how they work together. But the goal is to maintain the health of the organism, to maintain homeostasis. We use that term sometimes. And so as physiologists, we try to understand those principles. And I made a connection earlier, and I'll establish it back to systems biology. So many people and probably most of your listeners are aware that we have different systems, organ systems, for example, the brain, the heart, the lungs, the kidney. Well, they have to work together. So it's really this property of working together and communication that brings systems together. And and so that's uh, my introduction to what is systems biology. It's really understanding how many different parts work together for a common goal. Now, biology doesn't have goals, but biology has um, needs and drives and evolved um, properties, right? So we need to breathe. We need to regulate our blood pressure. We need to be able to get up and walk out of the room. These things are controlled by organ systems. Mm-hmm. Cells in any cell in your body has to do basic things. They have their own physiology, and those properties are, they come from a collection of molecules, genes, proteins, and those define a system. So I've just described two very broad levels of system biology, right? Putting things together, understanding how they work, and, fi- and those fundamental principles behind it. Major challenge. You're giving me a, kind of a visual uh, like you might see in a movie where it starts out at a very high level and then it zooms down, down, mm-hmm. down, down mm-hmm. into the eyeball. And in the eyeball, you, now you see the retina and then you go, or the picture or whatever the person's seeing. And then you zoom, 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 zoom. And then you see the cell. And then you know, now you're in the big cell and you zoom, 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 zoom. And now you're in the nucleus. Um, and you, you're p- painted this kind of very kind of yeah. mind-blowing uh, 1960s psychedelic kind of imagery. Is, that may seem more about yeah. me than what you said. But uh, what, I, what my mind immediately was thinking about in that description is something that's really important for your listeners to understand about the basic science that we tried to achieve. So I could produce an eyeball, and I think most people would be able to say that's an eyeball. But one of the challenges is that when you go deeper and deeper into that eyeball, as you just described elegantly, you start to not recognize it as an eyeball. Right. Right? So here's a big challenge. How can we take the information from a genome, right? So that's what every cell has. It's all of your genes put together. DNA, basically. DNA. How can we understand how that makes an eyeball work? When, if you're studying just the DNA, you can't even tell it's an eyeball, right? Major, major challenge. So systems biology on that level, on a molecular level, is very, very challenging because we're looking at common parts 
that you can't tell the difference fundamentally between the parts in an eyeball or a lung or a heart or a different cell. But you have to figure out how they all work together and collaborate to bring about those properties in a healthy state. So that's one of the motivations, a healthy state. I'm sure we'll talk about a disease state later, but you can imagine the challenges are exactly the same. Yeah. So tell me about uh, you're in a group uh, that studies systems biology. or calls itself a systems biology group. So, yes. so what are the components? What scientists, or what kinds of scientists uh, interact? Uh, does everyone take a system? I'm taking the eyeball. You're taking the <laughs> knee bone. I'm taking the nuclear. I'm taking the expression of genes. You're taking regulation. I'm like, what, what is this? Like, what's the system space around you? Well, it- we don't actually work like that. I okay. mean, that's I, I, it's a very cool idea that maybe one day we all get together and we start our labs at the same time and we sort of divide up, you know, the, the field, right? I bet that's, that's how you write your grants to sound. Well, no, actually. We're, okay. we're quite, um, quite honest. And what, what I can tell you about the composition of our systems biology center is that we have a very diverse set of expertise and experts. Okay. Each of us comes in with our own um, set of talents, our own um, initiatives and drives and quest in systems biology. And it's all of those differences together that are really allows us to weave this fabric of collaboration, right? And so we are not a group of copies, right? And I think you're going to find that property across most departments in, in most universities. We... We build educational institutions by diverse minds and theories and thoughts and people. But what a department does or what systems biology does, it brings people together under a common theme. So while we may look and do look very different on paper, we are all looking for um, common answers to complex questions in systems biology. And so in our department or in our center, we have, we have engineers in the traditional sense we have molecular engineers, so genome engineers. We have cellular biologists, physiologists like myself. We have evolutionary biologists. It turns out that you can understand the properties of complex systems by also understanding their origins, mm-hmm. right? This is the essence of evolution. Right. So you can imagine that all of these different fields that I just described coming together, and then we have a discussion. We say, okay, where can we focus ourselves? Where can we come together with all of our talents and really have a common problem? And, and that was one of the fundamental um, driving forces to put together our um, center on cancer systems biology. We realized that many of us had emerging projects in the area of cancer research, but we also realized that working together as a group, a system, if you will, a network, right. that we would actually be more powerful and, and be more productive and more innovative. And so that, that's really how it all came together, from the whole center to the center grant itself. Hmm. Now, you know, I was looking at your uh, you know, curriculum vitae and publications, and yes. it seems like you, you have a, a long history in what looks to me like microbiology. Yes. Uh, so... Um, I, I understand that cells are cells, but microbes, depending on what kind of microbes, uh, aren't even in the same, uh, you know, general family of cells as uh, as eukaryotes, like like we and, and most animals. So, so how? What was your path, or what is your path? 
as you're switching from a bug guy <laughs> to a human cell or animal cell and cancer guy. Yes, I I, I do uh, read on paper as a bug guy, and maybe I honestly I don't. And there's think nothing I'll, wrong with that. Absolutely I mean, I like, not. Some of my best no, friends no, no. are bug guys. <laughs> absolutely not, and I probably will never change. But why why even call myself why, a bug guy? Why have I done all this? Because it turns out that the bugs, the bacterium, are very simple but very powerful living test tubes. So a major focus of my research career and what really inspires me is to think of ways, invent technologies, or think of new methods or combination of methods to make those bacterial cells act and model the properties of human cells. So I'm using them as a tool. Hmm. And I choose them because they are far simpler, as you just pointed out. They're different. So the differences are important because I can model a network, for example. So let's take two human proteins that talk to each other. That's mm -hmm. a network, like a social network, right? Okay. I can model those or place those into a bacterial cell, but then I can study just the interaction of those two things without the influence of the rest of the mammalian cell or the cell that they came from. Right. So that sort of reductionist isolation is really important for hypothesis building and hypothesis testing. So that, that's a fundamental reason why I, I'm in bugs, but <laughs> let me make this perfectly clear. My motivation is really to understand human health. Got it. Well, we're going to pick up on uh, the interaction between your proteins and your bugs and human health and cancer after our break. Uh, because you certainly got my appetite whetted. Uh, but right now, we are going to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about systems biology with Dr. Jesse Reinhardt. Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, proud partner in personalized medicine, developing tailored treatments for cancer patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. There are many obstacles to face when quitting smoking, as smoking involves the potent drug nicotine, but it's a very important lifestyle change, especially for patients undergoing cancer treatment. Quitting smoking has been shown to positively impact response to treatments, decrease the likelihood that patients will develop second malignancies, and increase rates of survival. Tobacco treatment programs are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Smilo Cancer Hospital's tobacco treatment program operates on the principles of the U.S. Public Health Service Clinical Practice Guidelines. All treatment components are evidence-based and therefore all patients are treated with FDA-approved first-line medications for smoking cessation, as well as smoking cessation counseling that stresses appropriate coping skills. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore. And I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Jesse Reinhardt. We've been discussing systems biology. Okay, Jesse, before the break, you were uh, really starting with another kind of 
potentially mind-blowing thing for me about taking human proteins that interact, and it's too complicated to study them in human cells. So you put them in a much simpler bacterium and watch them interact, uh, and, and you, you love that um, that allusion to a social network. So mm-hmm. then you could put in a th- – like they could have another friend protein, right? Yes, And absolutely. recruit that in, and now you've got a three-way network. Is, there, yep. is that yep. what I'm getting at? Yep. Yep, absolutely. And I, I like that analogy because if you take three friends and you put them in a large room and you will probably find each other and you will talk, right? And so that that is an important principle inside cells that we know that proteins, so in our analogy, the friends, they find each other and they talk to each other and they form a network. And we call that network and we describe it as interactions, even in biology. And these interactions are you know, also a good term for how people talk to each other in a crowded room. So the uh, taking that analogy one step further, what I was trying to um, paint a picture of for your listeners was the fact that we can take those friends that we know collaborate inside a mammalian cell and get them to work and act inside a bacterial cell. And so think of it as our way of controlling the room, right? So really having a lot of defined factors that we can manipulate. It's, it's an engineering tool in a way, too, you know, allowing us a lot of freedom to manipulate things and make observations. So it's really, really working, and it's an exciting field. I guess not so different than social science experiments where they get, you know, 10 college students or graduate students, uh, put them in an artificial setting but in a room again, and then they test, you know, how that evolves. Yes. Uh, because they couldn't really do it in real life when everyone's going off in every direction or something like that. Yeah, that's true. And part of the, the challenge is finding the right people in our analogy or proteins in the real world to, to do, <laughs> right. right? So um, that brings us to, you know, the aims of, of using this technology in cancer. So we choose proteins that we know interact in a negative fashion, to, and we call it negative because it's driving the properties of a cancer cell. So we want to understand that more intimately, and so we bring that connection or those proteins together into the bacterial cell with the aim of modeling a network as it might exist in a cancer cell. Now, it's my understanding that most proteins that are involved in driving cancer are proteins that come from their normal proteins. They're sometimes not acting normally, right? I mean, they are mm-hmm. all human genes. These aren't genes that get in, were invaded by, right? Am I am I mistaken about that? That is that is correct. That uh-huh. is correct. So uh, so these. Proteins all had a positive role mm-hmm. at some point, or we wouldn't we would have evolved to get rid of them, right? So how do they become negative, or, or how do you pick a negative protein? What can you give us an example? Well, I'll just point out that you've asked still one of the most difficult and challenging questions, I, in my opinion, in cancer biology, are is the, what are the origins of the disease? Because I think what you implied, and I agree with you, that every cell has what should be a healthy set of genes, of proteins, and they should go along their way and be normal. So what happens? How do you take what should be a positive network and it's now negative? Very challenging questions. What we know and what we've learned over the years is that those negative properties can come from mutations and genes. So a cell has its own genome, and if it acquires the right mutation, it now has a cancer genome, if you will. Hmm. And we've discovered those, not myself, but the field has really identified that. 
But where we're coming in is we're focusing less on what is known about individual mutations, but rather once those mutations, if you are established in the cell, what happens next? Like what happens to the environment? And and can we find the whole process or the whole network of problems and and go after that in, in a in a productive sort of way? So just to backtrack on that, yes. uh, when the gene gets mutated, um, if it's going to turn into a part of a cancer genome, uh, it needs to make a protein that's maybe similar to what it was supposed to be, but it's got some different properties than the yes. than the than the normal one, and that's why it's behaving abnormally. That's right? yeah, that's that's correct. Um, the the gene is a template to make a protein, right? And so. If you have a gene that has one template, it makes one type of protein. But then if you change just a little bit of that template, it will make a different protein. And mm. as you just pointed out perfectly, it's making something with a slight change that can alter the properties of the, the protein in general. And and um, those, you know, we have learned those lessons. And, and on a simple level, it really boils down to chemistry because proteins are complex chemicals. They're assembled in the cell as long chains of defined chemistry. And you can have a single change in one piece of that chemistry, and it really can set the whole cell on a, on a different track and hmm. it could even form a cancer cell. So you are studying these mutated proteins and the networks or the friends that they form and how they operate, is that right? Yes, and we've actually taken on something a little bit more challenging than that. We are studying a property of cancer cells that we don't really understand the genetic basis, meaning that no one has identified a factor or a mutation or a set of mutations that really is responsible directly for the properties. And so, we're looking at how cancer cells move and how they move aggressively. And that physically you, move physically, you mean. physically. Uh -huh. And we were talking earlier about, you know, the physiological processes of breathing right. and walking. Well, imagine that in a cell and imagine trying to study that property without knowing how the heck it's happening. You know, cells don't have a leg, for example. You know, cells don't have what look like muscles, for example. So to really think about how is a cell really changing the properties of its movement in a negative way, and in the negative way in cancer is it becomes invasive, right? It doesn't stay where it's supposed to stay, right? Right. Um, and it moves away. So we're looking at very aggressive cancers that, and particular cells that move away from the solid tumor. And, and I use the term invasive because that's exactly what they do. They leave the solid tumor and they invade the nearby tissue. And so at the, the fundamental level, they are moving. How are they doing that? Well, we have a handful of proteins that can dictate some of that movement. And so it's those proteins that we've brought over into our bacterial model to just understand how they work together. Huh. Okay. So I I remember, and again, I'm very, very out of date here. So um, I remember cells, uh, cell biology that I learned, having proteins that were similar to some of our muscle uh, proteins that helped move, give cells structure, correct, uh, and uh, and move them. Have, am I like so out of date, or is this what you're no, talking no, no, about? No, 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 I I was overgeneralizing. Yeah. So, absolutely, you're correct. There are fibers inside cells that you could 
really equate to a muscle fiber. What I was trying to point out in a very simple way is that the structures inside of a cell are not as recognizable sure. as a as a human leg or something. So, and I was just trying to paint the pictures uh, a picture for the listeners that how do you understand how a cell moves when we don't really understand what a cell leg looks like, for right. example. We have to really think um, creatively. We have to be very um, um, inquisitive to try to figure out the basic principles of that movement mm-hmm. and then understand how has that been deranged inside of a cancer cell, right? Right. So, so big it, challenge. So is it these these fibrous moving structures that you're studying or, or proteins that regulate the movement or the contraction or the It's the extent, second part. The it's, second the reg- regulatory it's the regulation. Huh. So one of the principles that we're interested in is this idea of regulation, that there is a natural state of regulation that's good, right? You have a little bit of movement, not too much, not too little. But if that regulation goes awry, then you can force too much movement. And so we imagine that these cancer cells have somehow reprogrammed that system to regulate more aggressive movement. And since we believe that we're studying some of the fundamental proteins that drive that process, we can better understand the regulation. So it is, as you said, it's all about regulation. But then it's, so how much is too much, right? And, and that's, that's a major challenge. And do the proteins that your study come from a particular kind of cancer? Yes, we're, well, we're actually studying proteins that, as I, I, I drew um, um, a picture for us earlier about how when you dig down deep into a cell, right. it's difficult to tell the difference. So we're actually using proteins that can be commonly found other places, but we actually know that there are more of them Mm -hmm. in cancer cells, and they have been uniquely repurposed in particular cancers. So one area that we're looking um, and very intensely is um, brain cancer and glioblastoma in particular. Um, There we're looking at sets of proteins that really seem to be specialized in those aggressive cancers. And that's, that specialization is different from maybe what they might look like or what they might do in other cells. Hmm. So let's just uh, fantasize forward. Uh, so you, you're, you figure out, let's say, um, uh, important features that regulate uh, the movement that that and you maybe I guess would go back and and validate that that's operative in these brain cancer cells. I Absolutely, suppose. yeah. And, and and then what? And then so what? Like, what do you do with that information? It's, I mean, it sure sounds interesting and worthwhile knowing. But does this does this help people with brain cancer? So, the information itself doesn't directly help a person with brain cancer, but what. Our aim is, and it's something that I'm very passionate about, is when we are sure and when we've tested all our hypotheses and we can present a a new set of information, let's say in a publication, that that information contains enough um, good leads that it can translate into the clinic, right? So that means that we've identified a set of proteins and their properties, and we really understand how they work in cancer. That is then the beginnings of forming hypothesis about how maybe to design a drug or a therapy to 
reverse that process. So I really believe that what we do is provide these packets of knowledge that allow someone else to take that next step. And if it's really good and we're really careful about it and we and we find uh, important information, that, that, that packet of knowledge can go far and wide. It can be disseminated to many, many laboratories or maybe even into the private sector where let's say a drug company might think, let's, let's focus on this information, let's develop a drug, then that will someday impact a patient. Now I'm uh, visualizing your system center as being part of this like, much bigger system that includes mm-hmm. other cancer centers. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I think you've just described how, um, the, how a field, let's say cancer biology in general, how that progresses, right? We, in, individual labs, investigators, um, publish papers. Those papers are made publicly available for anyone to read. Obviously, experts in the field read them, but maybe someone else reads them too. And, and I think that's how science works fundamentally. That's how we move forward. Dr. Jesse Reinhardt is an associate professor of cellular and molecular physiology at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.